0: You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible is all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find a campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org.
1: So Russ and I met... um many many years ago and about a year and a half um, after dating we got married. It was about two or three years later we decided to uh, start having children.
2: We went to a doctor and he told us that uh, we were infertile which was very heart heartbreaking.
1: We spent about two years doing infertility treatments and um, after several miscarriages um, we decided that that was not the path that we were going to take. I was not really sure where God was at that time, wasn't sure um, what his plan was going to be for us and uh, we just kind of you know, really, all we had left, of course, was God, and just kind of getting on our knees and asking God, what, what is the plan
2: for us? So we prayed about it, and um, we felt pretty safe that God was pushing us towards adoption. And seven months later, we were matched up with the birth mom. And um, three weeks later, after that, we got a phone call that he was, uh, he was on his way, and he was here. So we had, a, we were ready to go, go meet our son.
1: I've never thought of love at first sight for a child um, that you never had given birth to, but it was immediate. He was absolutely meant to be, that God had specifically planned him to be our child.
2: It was about four years later that we decided that we were going to pursue adoption again. We were ready and um, hoping for maybe a baby girl.
1: We got matched with a birth mom pretty soon after, and um, we're really excited. about a couple weeks before the, uh, the adoption was going to be final and the baby was going to be born, um, things just imploded. It turned out that she was unfortunately scamming us and a couple other families into just you know, getting money and um, I, it rocked my world. I went into a depression. Um, I couldn't function and I was questioning where, where God was in all of this.
2: You just didn't know where, where is God taking us, why is He taking us down this road, what What do we need to learn from this? When the uh, adoption was, uh, we realized that it wasn't gonna happen. There was a lot of things that were going on in our lives. I think I was selfish in a sense that I I didn't want life to change. I wanted it to stay the same. Uh, We made the move um, back to Charlotte. I was finishing up a career um, back in, in Utah, and I decided to selfishly stay there.
1: This is probably the hardest part um, of our, our marriage together.
2: And I didn't even realize that we were going through a challenge.
1: Which made it even more challenging.
2: After the failed adoption, we took about a year, um, and we got a phone call and out of the blue and said there was a situation. Would we be interested? And we started praying about it and felt like it was, this is where we wanted yeah. to go, so we pursued it.
1: I immediately felt at, at peace that that was going to be our, our next child, and about six months after we got matched with her, we had the sweet little Eli in our in our hands. Even though going through you know just the challenges we've had um, and how difficult and painful it was, that it reminded me that God is in control. I believe during the second um, attempt for adoption, I was trying to control it, but knowing with the failure that God is in control, and He had so much bigger and better for us than we could ever even imagine.
2: At the end of the day, God is where we need to put our trust in. And we kept saying it, we kept saying God's in control, God's in control, but we kept taking it back, taking it back, and I think that's what we do in life, we just keep taking it back until you just fall to your knees and say, hey, take it God, just take it.
1: I do believe that this journey of adoption um, is a reminder of of God adopting me into His family. And having Elijah and Joshua adopt into our family kind of reinforces that they are are ultimately God's children.
2: It feels so right that, that this is the way God wanted it to be for us.
0: Isn't that a great story, how much God loves us, and no matter what the color of our skin may be, and we're all part of his family, adopted. We had nothing to do with it. He chose us to be a part of his family. Shows that there's nothing meritorious within us to cause him to love us. He just loves us wildly and madly, and that basically is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. I want to restate that next week the Uptown campus begins again. Would you praise God for that? They open up uh, in their first week of worship. All the campuses applaud over that one. That's a wonderful opportunity for us to continue to expand our witness. Uh, We're looking at the gospel of John. I've written this book. We've distributed over 6,000 of them here on the different campuses. If you don't have one, you can get it online or in the the bookstore at the South Park campus. Uh, We have a reading guide for the next four months to follow along I'll preach a message within the week's reading guide and this week's message will have to do with people pleasing and how I'm sure that's not a problem for you but that's something I have to struggle with Continually, do I want the applause of God or people? Uh, so we'll look at that as we study John chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Before I read the verses, let me just give you a little bit of its context, um, because if you don't understand a text in its context, it can often turn into pretext, which is always dangerous. The context of John 22, 22, uh, 22 through 25 is. Uh, really the message of grace and truth we looked at last week that Jesus was full of grace and truth John 1 14 so should we be Uh, then we see in his life an evidence of grace and truth in operation Uh, we see for example in John 2 the first part of that section of that scripture is, is dealing with Jesus changing water into wine somebody forgot to buy enough wine and it was an embarrassing situation so Jesus turned water into wine so that somebody wouldn't get embarrassed. It was a great moment of grace. And then he went into the temple and cleansed the temple for the first of two times, one at the beginning of his ministry in John 2, one at the end of his ministry. And this, he was so ticked off with the money changers, you know, selling money, but not because they were selling baubles in God's temple, which sometimes the church interprets, you know, that, that may have been part of his anger and concern, but his real zeal, His real anger was that in the temple there are concentric courts which lead to the holy of holies, and God wanted Gentiles and Jews to be able to worship the one true God. In fact, it's very clear that God called the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles, and the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. Then the next one was the court of the women, then the court of the men, and then the holy of holies, and God wanted each person to go deeper and deeper and deeper until they worshiped him. And the court of the Gentiles was where all the folks were selling the money-changing stuff, and it just take Jesus off because it was keeping the Gentiles from being able to worship God. You need to know that's why God called the Israelites primarily was to be a light to the Gentiles. He called the church primarily to be a light to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel to the nations. And that's why Jesus was so angry because the Gentiles were not having access to the one true God. So that's a message of truth as he cleansed the temple. So grace and truth were in operation in the verses leading up to our verses today. John, the second chapter, verses 22 through 25. Out of reverence for the reading of the scripture, if you're able, would you now please stand? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man that is so key he knew what's in our hearts folks and he didn't trust any of us the word of the lord you may be seated So as you look at these verses that I just read to you, there are two meanings. I'm going to gloss over one pretty quickly and spend most of my time on the second meaning because I think it applies to all of our lives. The first one is for us personally, this whole idea of Jesus didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in us shows that he knew the whole idea of original sin. I read an article in The Observer this week from a Muslim person who said original sin doesn't exist from their standpoint. God bless them. It is consistently in our scripture. In our Christian understanding of sin, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they passed on that sin to every single one of us, even our children. And as I've joked with you so often, I've said, if you don't believe that, do you have to teach your children to obey or disobey? What? You have to teach them to Obey because there's a natural bentness in their selfishness within them toward disobedience. And you try to love the kid while bending their heart toward obedience. And we see that teaching throughout all of the Bible. And it's in our hearts. And God knows what is in our hearts. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. This is Saul's appearance when he was chosen as king. Don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature. He was a tall guy because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. The Lord looks at our hearts, folks. I don't care if you have tattoos, I don't care what color your skin is. God looks at your heart. That's what's most important to him. Then begs the question, what goes on within our hearts? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is what, folks? Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's not exactly an optimistic message about our hearts, is it? It is deceitful and desperately sick. We all look out for number one. And then there's Romans 121 when Paul's exploding his teaching about the condition of humankind and especially the heart. He says in Romans 121, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish, what, hearts were darkened. So people who rebel against God, don't honor him, don't give thanks to him. Isn't it amazing that a thousand good things can happen to us and we'll never thank God. But one bad thing happens to us and we forever blame God and call him all kinds of bad names. It just shows the darkness of our hearts. We so seldom give thanks for all the things that we have. You know, we did a a video during the Christmas season, about just giving thanks for all that you have. It went viral, over 20 million views. Unbelievable, but I think it just struck a chord within people that that we just look at life and so often overlook all the things for which we have to be thankful. And our unthankfulness is an indication of our foolish hearts that are darkened. We have dark hearts, and we're selfish, prideful, Self-exalting, self-aggrandizing. We look out for number one. We take care of ourselves more than anybody else. And Jesus knew the condition of our hearts. A, that's why he came, was to give us new hearts filled with his love, compassion, kindness, and mercy. But he didn't trust anybody, no one, because he knew what was in their hearts. And if you look at his life, not only did he have Judas reject him, a man with whom he spent three and a half years, even gave him charge over the money. And I don't know about you, but if you give somebody your money to be in charge of, you're trying to reach out to them and care for them, right? And he rejects Jesus. And even at the Last Supper, when they're in this circle, Jesus' head is next to Judas on his left at his breast. It is the place of most significance for people at a Last Supper. So even until his last moments on earth, Jesus was reaching out to Judas with his love. But Judas rejected him. Jesus knew rejection. He he knew what it was like to be despised and rejected. Uh, When he was on the cross, the people at the bottom of the cross are all women and one man. The, The only one who is present is John, the writer of this gospel we're studying. Everybody else had run away. Everybody hid because they knew that if they got caught, they could be killed like the one on the cross. Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. Now, now, why is this important, folks? Because I am convinced that one of the reasons the gospel is not implanted firmly enough in people's hearts, in America especially, and making a difference in our nation is because we've not taught the bad news enough. What so many preachers are preaching is just the good news. And I love the good news. Mary and I were driving by church this week. and We saw a sign out front said, we put the good in the good news. And I'm going, great, just make sure you put the bad in the bad news as well. Because the good news doesn't make any sense unless you understand the bad news. And the bad news is our hearts are wicked, dark, and deceitful above all else. And our destination, unless there's divine intervention, is hell. What salvation is, good news, is being saved from hell. And we forever praise, worship, and give our lives to the one who rescued us. And the good news is now he's taken our rocky, selfish, self-aggrandizing hearts and replaced it with a new, malleable, pliable heart filled with his unconditional love that's willing to die for someone else. Is that you? If you don't have that kind of understanding of the gospel, you've never really understood who Jesus is. And that message, dear friends, begins with the bad news. Jesus trusted no person because he knew what was in their heart. So when you get disappointed by somebody, how many of you have been disappointed by somebody? The rest of you raise your hands, liar, liar, pants on fire. The truth is all of us have been hurt by people and the major reason is because of their hearts. And it shouldn't surprise us, which leads to my second point that I want to spend most of our time with today. One of the evidences of the selfishness of our hearts is what I would call the approval addiction. So many of you, have tried to find your life's meaning with the approval of other people. You know, that sin condition in our hearts has caused a void, and we are looking for love in all the wrong places, aren't we? We're trying to find it in so many different places that can't fill it. And I don't care how much your spouse is wonderful, and I've got the greatest spouse who's ever lived, but Marilyn cannot meet the deepest longings of my heart. And as I have disappointed her sometimes, sometimes she's disappointed me because we know what's in each other. I have lived a good part of my life as a recovering people approval addict. Admitting the feeling is the beginning of healing, right? So that's a good thing to admit, right? I have dealt with the approval addiction, right? And and in the church, you know, I've, I've had times when If somebody really cool comes to Forest Hill, I go, wow. somebody leaves Forest Hill, I go, oh, man, what's wrong with me? And and I live in the tension of people's approval of me. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And, And it is a huge problem that exists in our culture. It's people idolatry. And as I've told you so often, people make lousy gods, don't they? They they hurt our hearts in so many different ways. Let me give you one of the evidences of people addiction in our culture. Social media. Social media. We spend hours on social media hoping somebody's going to like us. Somebody's going to... Follow us. And if somebody doesn't like us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or, or somebody defriends us, oh my, we go into depression for a week. Did you know that studies have been done that when our phones vibrate, it releases dopamine within us? And dopamine, in case you don't know, is a bodily element that's supposed to encourage us and give us a lift when we're down. It's a wonderful gift of God. But people are so addicted to social media that they wait for this thing to buzz, vibrate, whether it's in our back pocket our front pocket or wherever it might be. And immediately we think, oh boy, maybe it's a friend who likes me. And we actually send out 10 texts a day hoping one will come back to make us feel good. You don't believe this? Let me ask you if you're a social media, people-pleasing addict. When you go out to eat with your friends or family, do you take out your phone and put it on the table? When you're meeting just with a friend over a coffee, do you take the phone out and put it on the table? In the middle of the night, do you check to see if you've got a text? Come on now. Be honest with me. Do you put it next to your bedside just in case it vibrates and you might want to check it? And some of you are saying, I I use it for my alarm. Buy an alarm clock. (laughs) They cost $10 or so, maybe less. We 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 use this thing as a constant way to achieve approval. And did you know there is now, in psychological literature, something called the approval addiction? It is as real as an alcohol addiction, as a drug addiction, an approval addiction. And and for those of you who are millennials, 1980-plus until today, here's what I think happened with you. Let me put this back in my pocket and just wait for another vibration, please. Um, Here's what I think happened to you. You were raised by helicopter parents who just wanted you to be the best. And if you got a B on a course, your teacher's worst nightmare was us because we'd be in their face. Why didn't he or she get an A? Or why didn't my kid get more playing time? We say to the coach. And we keep trying to help and rescue you. And a lot of the organizations out there don't help a whole lot because every kid on the team gets a trophy. Every kid. Now, it's a wonderful thought to try to improve self-esteem, but, folks, it just isn't real life. You know, everybody doesn't get a trophy in the work world. And so what's happened is you've graduated with helicopter parents who tried to Take care of everything for you and you're now in the work world where you don't get all that approval and mom and dad aren't interceding with your boss anymore and telling him whatever. And and you're not being able to succeed, you know, just on your own. You don't get a trophy any longer, and you're just upset. So where do you try to find your approval? Where do you try to find it? With people. And so the millennials, they're the most socially oriented people. They want to work in a workplace where there's a cause but they're frustrated because there are demands upon their lives and they just don't feel like they're getting the approval they were so addicted to. God intended for kids to be brought into a home where parents are operating totally in the perfect balance of grace and truth. I've said this so often to you. Kids are constantly asking two questions. Do you love me and can I have my own way? And it is the responsibility of parents to say, yes, wildly, no, you can't. And as you draw parameters around them, they learn how to function with grace and truth in their lives. But then they've gotten into the work world when we've helicoptered and given them everything and they just can't function anymore. And so we look for love in all the wrong places. We look for people to be our approval and guess what? They'll fail you, don't they? Guys will date you, gals, just to get in bed with you. There are studies where online you can hook up via your phone. The guy will come by to your apartment, sleep with you, and then as he's getting up the next morning, he's going online trying to find somebody else. And girls are doing the same thing. You know, people will disappoint you. The, the divorce rate is, I hate it because some, many of you are divorced. I don't mean to hurt you at all. I, I just, it was supposed to be God's design that you stay forever and love one another and find your identity in him. And then he teaches you how to love one another. You stay committed in marriage and raise kids with grace and truth. And then kids leave the home knowing how to find relationships that are meaningful. That was God's intention, and it's gone bankrupt, hasn't it? But because we're selfish. I've done a personal study in my 30-plus years of marriage counseling. I'm going to give you the major reason that marriages break up. Men and women are very selfish. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> that is a study that I have done, and it's, um, it's absolutely true. that. Let me give you some verses from the Bible for those of you who struggle with approval addictions. Let me start with Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So if you are a people approval addict and you're trying to find your identity in people, it's a snare. I'll come back to that in just a second. Luke 16, 15 and John 12, 43, two words from Jesus 1 Luke 16, 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God knows your hearts, and that which you're exalting, he thinks important in life, is an abomination. John 12, 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That, That was the people who were getting ready to nail Jesus to a cross. They wanted the glory... A people more than they wanted the glory of God. So, So back to that Proverbs verse. Why in the world is people pleasing a snare? Here are a couple reasons. First, you miss God's purpose in your life. If you're constantly trying to please people, you can't also please God. You can't. You can't worship the one true God of the universe and make people your gods as well. That's Being diffuse in your focus can't happen. And it's also exhausting. Isn't it exhausting trying to get people to like you? Isn't the people approval addiction exhausting in every possible way? It's a snare. It will trip you up. It will catch you, and it will ruin your life. You will be forever waiting for the next vibration. So how in the world do we begin to overcome the approval addiction problem? Let me give you two ways. First of all, remember God. Remember God. Or or let me put it another way. And this is what finally began to set me free from the people approval addiction that I had. It was when my daddy told me two things. And, And if you don't have a good dad who is godly, And taught you good things. Would you let me be your dad? Would you let me be your granddad? Would you let me teach you some good things? Here's what my daddy said to me. He said, son. Well, not long with the people make lousy gods. He said, son. Son. (laughs) Had this voice that only God would envy. You know, son. Don't worry about what other people are thinking of you. They're not thinking of you at all. They're too busy thinking about themselves. Right? Right? Would you give my dad an applause? He's in heaven right now. Maybe he's looking on. and I just know it's true that that people really do make lousy gods, and people aren't really thinking about you that much at all. Um, Let me give you a few verses here. Psalm 2710. David said, I do not receive glory. I'm sorry, first of all, John five forty one. excuse me, from Jesus' lips. I do not receive glory from people. He didn't expect it. He did not expect it, that people would give him glory. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in, Psalm 27, 10. Some of you are still today hoping your mom and your dad will give you some kind of gesture of approval. You never got it. I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry. God intended them to do it, for you to have from them the words of how much they love you and appreciate you. But if they didn't, God does. He loves you. He cares for you. Hold that in mind until I get to my next point. Then, Finally, 1 John 2.17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. My point here is, think in terms of eternity. This, This world is passing by. Have you seen how quickly things change? Things change so fast in this world. Well, here's the point. With people... Don't look for their approval because 15, 20, 30 years from now or in eternity, who cares? Who cares? It's much like your high school reunion. You've been back to that one some 10, 20, 30 years later, and you go back there, and people are still living 30 years ago. And some of you back then, and myself included, were worried about what people thought of you in high school And you lived every day for peer pressure approval. And now you're 30 years later. Does that person even think about you at all? Why are you still thinking about that person? Well, the fact is you're probably not. You've forgotten. You've moved on. Forget about them and move on. And play to an audience of one. You are seeking only God's approval. And in heaven, you know, I read the scripture and it says we don't get married in heaven blast. I want to be married to Marilyn forever. I really do. I wish all of you could know what a wonderful woman she is. And and for those of you who didn't have a mom who's godly, I hope she can speak into your hearts as well. Or or she'll be a grandmom too, because we got four of them. Would you like to see their pictures, by the way? Anyway, in heaven, Are you going to remember what happened in eternity 10,000 years ago? I mean, We're going to be with the people we love, and God's going to love us, and everybody's going to love us, and it's going to be perfect there. But don't worry about it now. So remember God and remember his glory. Remember eternity. And secondly, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Now, I'm going to say this as clearly as I can. If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you love the gospel of grace, What's the gospel of grace? I'm so glad you asked. Here's the bad news, that we are reprobate sinners and deserving of hell. We have rebelled against God. If you don't believe that, the Bible says do two things. First of all, look at the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Go through each one and ask yourself, how you doing? Any other gods before God? Ever coveted? Ever lied? Ever committed adultery? He's say, well, no, I haven't done that one. Well, Jesus says, if you've even lusted upon a woman, you've committed adultery. Hello, guys. Want to raise your hands now? What's the point? With every one of the Ten Commandments, guilty, 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 and they should drive us to the cross of Christ. Drive us with hearts asking for the forgiveness of our sins and the rescue of hell. The second thing, though, the Bible says in the book of James, it says, look at Jesus' life. It's like a mirror to our lives. Jesus is how God intended every human being to live. Jesus perfectly obeyed the moral law every single day of his life. So put your life against the mirror of Jesus' life. Uh oh. Let, let me tell you what it should really do. I have a mirror at home in my bathroom. I look in that and I look occasionally at the lines and I go, oh, getting a little older there, Chadwick. Grayer hairs, oh man, ouch. Um, but when I go into a fancy hotel and I go into their bathroom, where there are light bulbs around the mirror. You know what I'm talking about? What does it do? It exposes every wrinkle and every gray hair and the fact that I'm really getting old. And that's what Jesus does. He is the mirror with the light bulbs around it. You look at his life and you go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm a reprobate sinner I need somebody to intervene. Now, that's the bad news. Let me give you the good news. The good news is that God so loved you. He pursued you in Christ. He became one of us in a baby. He lived the perfect life we could never live because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin. He bypassed original sin. And this Jesus went to the cross and took the penalty of our sins upon himself so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. Isn't that good news? Now, that's really good news to the rescue and the life that we have now. Now, let me share something with you. On the cross, Jesus said these words, My Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment that Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself, that perfect life he had with the Father was separated. For the Father could not have anything to do with a sinful human being, even God himself. That means that at a moment on the cross, the Father rejected the Son. Have you ever thought about that? The greatest desire Jesus had was to do the will of the Father and to be in union life with him. That's what he was struggling with in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. Father, is there another way? And the Father said, No, this is the only way to save a bunch of reprobates like you and me. Now, when you have a friend reject you, and I've had friends reject me and betray me and all that hurts, it really does. But if Marilyn ever rejected me, the one with whom I'm one flesh and have been for 30, almost seven years, if she rejected me, the pain would be extraordinary. Wouldn't it? Because the closer the relationship, the greater the pain, right? Well, Jesus underwent the greatest rejection possible, the oneness of life with his Father. And they had this perfect love relationship, this beautiful synchronized dance of love that had been in existence in eternity, and the Father rejected him. Why? So that those of us who receive Jesus will know that he's been through it too. But because of that, when him living in us, he will never, ever, ever reject us. He'll never disappoint us. He'll never let us down. We can depend upon him with our people pleasing, can't we? You can give him glory for that. So remember the gospel and believe it. But if you do, remember Galatians 1.10, Paul said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you love God and you love the gospel and you tell people about your belief in Jesus, you're going to get rejected. And Paul's here clearly says you can't follow Jesus and have a people approval addiction. Can you? Because people don't like, especially the bad news. In our culture, and I've shared the gospel with so many different people, it it boils down to two things. You either believe you're basically good and occasionally do bad things or you're basically selfish and occasionally do good things. It's one of the two. Every secularist and really a lot of nominal Christians believe they're basically good and occasionally do bad things. Well, why do you need a Savior? You're good enough. And by your good works, you'll get to heaven. But the truth is, the Bible teaches you we're basically sinful and occasionally do good things because we're created in the image of God. And he's good. And we need a Savior. And that's what Paul knew. And so if you believe that and you preach that and live that, people are going to be offended. They're just not going to like the bad news. And, And Paul knew that. But Jesus also said these words. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels? Dear friends, I want to exhort all of you that the ministry of reaching people who don't know Christ doesn't rest with just me and the campus pastors. It rests with you. And I want to ask you a very profound question. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? With whom have you shared the gospel and if you've not, is it because of people pleasing? Because you're fearful you'll be rejected? I want to challenge all of you and all of the campuses if you are a follower of Jesus and believe the gospel, whom are you going to reach before Easter? Whom has, the God, has God laid on your heart who needs to understand and believe in the gospel and change their eternal trajectory? For our unwillingness to share the gospel is the ultimate evidence of a people addiction. If we really love people, we tell them the truth, don't we? And some of you today, I pray you'll come to Jesus by the end of this message and be rescued for his glory. And one final thought. The way to overcome people' addictions is by God, the gospel, and, and preach the gospel to yourself. Every morning, when your feet hit the floor, preach the gospel to yourself, say, "I'm a child of God. I'm loved by Him. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins." What does the approval of people mean to me? Do it every morning. Feet hits the ground, preach the gospel to yourself. But also then thoroughly be in groups. God gospel groups, be among a group of people. What God intended the church to be was a group of redeemed people who are in groups in circles with people who love them unconditionally like Jesus has loved them as well. So I can't exhort all of you enough to be in life groups. And if you used to be in a life group and yours has now disbanded, let me encourage you if you're a follower of Jesus, how about for three years, that's how long the disciples followed him, you should be leading a group. You should be leading a group. I'm going to challenge all of you to take a group of people and make disciples because that's the call of God on all our hearts. For for 36 years every year, I've led groups trying to disciple people because I want people to know the gospel. It sets you free from a lot of stuff, especially people-pleasing. Free at last, free at last. Thank God I'm free at last, Martin Luther King said. And I don't think he cared one whit what people thought. He thought about what Jesus thought and was willing even to give his life for that good news. To God be the glory. Before we depart, can I share with you one thing? In case you don't know. Here's again how much money we raised to send to the Egyptian church. Last week was a snow weekend. A lot of you couldn't be here. We raised over $700,000 with the Christmas Eve offering to plant a church in New Cairo. And, and before we leave, can I show you a brief video? The Monday night we arrived, we went immediately to the church, and the pastor was preaching. And here's just a brief synopsis of that preaching moment. And they were just worshiping Jesus unabashedly in the middle of that huge Muslim area, just worshiping Jesus. And, and I was with one of the guys in that church, and I leaned over and said, Aren't you afraid of persecution? Aren't you afraid they'll come and throw you into jail? And I'll never forget his response. He's about five foot six, poked out his chest, and he said, Let them try. Let them try. Let them try. May that be our passion with the gospel as well. Amen.